Thank you to Joe Levitt. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to that passage that Joe just read, Mark chapter 6. And uh, we're continuing in our journey here along with Jesus and his disciples. A very interesting passage that we get to. And it reminded me of something that I heard uh, not too long ago about early childhood development. And I know we probably have some experts in the room, and I'm certainly I am not an expert in early childhood development. But I understand there's this milestone in a baby's um, mental development called object permanence. And what object permanence is, it's the ability for a baby to understand that even when he or she can't see a person or an object or a thing, that that person, object, or thing still exists somewhere else outside of their point of view. So imagine if you have a very young infant um, and, and, you know, psychologists say the object permanence probably develops around the 12-month mark or a little bit later for most children. But imagine, say, a six- or nine-month-old infant and you're interacting with them and you're present with them as long as they can see you, as long as they can touch you, as long as their senses can experience you. But when you go in the other room, from their perspective, you've ceased to exist. You're just gone. They, they haven't developed yet the ability to carry the mental construct of you existing apart from their own ability to see you and interact with you with their own senses. So this is actually, I think, why peekaboo is so much fun to a baby, right? It's like, from their perspective, it's like, there's a face. There's some hands. There's a face. There's some hands. And, you know, you can have fun all day long. And I thought, what would be the adult equivalent of, of the fun that, that kids have from peekaboo? If I could snap my fingers and literally disappear <laughs> and then snap them again and come back, we could have fun all morning with that. You guys would be wildly entertained, right? That's the equivalent. Now, object permanence is closely, I think, tied spiritually to the idea of faith. Think about it this way. Listen, listen to the definition of faith according to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So the idea here is we also, as adults, when it comes to our spiritual lives, we have this object permanence milestone that we need to get through that we can hold on to the fact that God is real and that he is good even when we can't see him or see the effects of his goodness immediately in our lives. So some of you have, you know, in a place, Tim kind of referenced this earlier in, in his comments. Some of you are in a place right now where you just can't see the goodness of the Lord. You can't see his power. He's just not showing up in, in your life. It's like he's left the room. And you have a tendency, and I do too in those seasons of my life, to just say, well, Golly, is, is he real? It's object permanence. It's exactly what's happening in the lives of these disciples in the episode that Joe read. And I want to dig into that and kind of explain the relationship to this. The reason I set it up with this example is I think we need to understand that we all find ourselves in this story. Right? We all find ourselves in this situation where God has just done this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 in the disciples' case. Later that same night, they're out on the boat and he's not with them. They can't see him. They freak out. Then he starts walking toward them on the water. And instead of thinking, oh, our Savior has come to be with us, they're thinking it's a ghost. <laughs> right? They've, they've failed to connect the dots. And then the explanation given, because their hearts were hardened, is where we're going to apply it to our own lives. So let's dig into this passage. There's a lot for us to learn from it. I want to start by going backwards. You can stay at Mark 6, but I want to flip back to Mark 3 and give you some context for what we're going to read. The reason I go back to Mark 3 is Mark chapter 3 is the chapter where Jesus first chooses the 12. 
And it says in Mark chapter 3 that he chose the 12 to be with him and so that he could send them out to do ministry. And that's exactly what happens. They're with him at first, so all throughout chapter 3 and chapter 4, they're not doing teaching, they're not doing any ministry on their own, they're just observing their master. And then in private, they're coming to him and asking questions and he's explaining things to them. You get to chapter 4 and Jesus moves them from the classroom to the laboratory. We talked about this with the great storm, the first storm in the Gospel of Mark at the end of Mark chapter 4 when Jesus is with them in the boat, but he's asleep. I think he's intentionally asleep when this storm comes because he's kind of putting them in the lab saying, all right, you've heard me talk about all these things. Now I want you to start exercising your faith. And of course, they fail that first test. They wake him up saying, Jesus, don't you care about us? You're sleeping. And of course, he gets up, he calms the storm, and he says, where's your faith? So then, you know, the text goes on, chapter 5, you see a lot more teaching of Jesus, a lot more miracles of Jesus. Then you get to chapter 6, and now he sends them out. This is like lab, you know, on steroids, lab part 2. He sends them out to do ministry, to teach, to cast out demons, to proclaim the good news of the coming kingdom. And they return back, and things went well. Like, this test went kind of well for them. And it's immediately after they return that all the people flock around. And this is the text that you heard uh, last week uh, when Michael was here, the feeding of the 5,000, which was probably more like 10,000, as Michael explained to us with, with uh, women and children, etc. Now, what's interesting about that, if you remember from last week, is Jesus tells the disciples first, you give them something to eat. You see, he's inviting them to action again. I don't want you to just be an observer, Jesus saying. I want you to actively participate in the ministry. And they say, well, we don't have enough resources for that. And Jesus says, essentially, you know, I'll paraphrase, that's exactly right. You don't have enough resources for that. Give me what you have. I'll multiply it. You see, it's my power that I minister my power through you. And who distributes the food? The disciples. So it's a lesson for them in ministering through the power of Christ. And now we get to this very next section. Now, why do I tell you all this? I tell it to you so that you can keep in mind that Jesus has these disciples on a very intentional growth path. He's developing them. And so the storm that they enter into in our passage today is no accident. It's the next step in their growth and the next step in their development. So let's pick it back up, and, and I'm going to kind of jump around a little bit in this passage. You've already heard it read, uh, most of it read by Joe earlier. So let's pick it back up in, uh, in, in, chapter four, in verse 45, rather. Immediately, that means immediately after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. Now, Notice here that he directs them. It says he made them go on ahead of them. So again, he's being intentional. He's saying, all right, you just ministered with me through my power. Now I'm going to put you on your own again. And this time he knows in his mind, although he's not telling them ahead of time, I'm going to put you in a situation with some danger. Now Jesus is going to be in control the whole time. But he's, he's trying to push the disciples and test their faith and stretch their faith so that they will develop object permanence. The trust that he's in control even when they can't see him. Even when he's not in the boat. So that's exactly what's happening here. Now, 
I love the way uh, Alan Cole put it. Alan Cole is a commentator. And you know, when you prepare for a message, you read all kinds of commentaries. And you know, there's different perspectives on text. And, and you know, men and women that know Greek much more deeply than I do, and they give a lot of insights. And one particular help for me this week was from Alan Cole. And this is what he said about this storm. He says, The storm did not show that the disciples had deviated from the path of God's will. Instead, God's path for them lay through the storm. Isn't that interesting? And I started thinking of myself and for you all as a body, how frequently when the storm comes, right? The, you know, the, the, the metaphorical storm comes in our lives. You know, and it comes for all of us in various ways at various times. Our first thought is, am I outside of God's will? Have I deviated from it? You know, have I been neglecting it? Well, and maybe sometimes that is true. Obviously, when we step apart from close, intimate relationship with Christ, there's a certain amount of discipline that goes with that. There's a certain amount of God wanting to draw us back in. But at least in this case, the storm was not a result of them deviating from God's will. Jesus commanded them, get in the boat, knowing that the storm was coming. I think that's a helpful reminder to us. Now, let's jump down to verse 48. Let's see what happens here. So Jesus is up on the mountain. 48 says, Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Now, this is a very interesting verse. Let's spend some time unpacking this. First of all, the fourth watch of the night, I don't know what your translation says, but that was between 3 and 6 a.m. So it was actually early morning. So you can imagine what's happened. They had the, the, the dinner time, you know, the evening time feeding of the 5,000. Then they go down, they get in the boat, they, they set out. So it's been all night that these men had been going against the wind, you know, or rowing against this wind. Now, if you have ever been to Israel, if you've seen the Sea of Galilee, you'll know it's kind of set down kind of in a valley and there's mountains and hills all surrounding it. There's a great elevation change. So Jesus was up high enough and probably early morning the sun was beginning to rise. He could see them and he could see, man, it's been six hours, seven hours. They've been going at this. They have not made much progress. So Jesus then comes down and he decides to come to them by walking on the water. Now you get this very interesting phrase, he intended to pass by them. Now this is, by the way, the same incident where Peter steps out of the boat and walks on the water with Jesus. Mark chooses not to relay that part of the account. It doesn't fit his purpose for telling this narrative. John doesn't mention it as well. Matthew's the one that mentions it and it fits the context of the story within the Gospel of Matthew. But why would Jesus intend to pass by? Greek scholars have puzzled over this. And, and some of them had said, well, it just means from the perspective of the disciples, it looked like he was intending to pass by, but he really wasn't intending to pass by. He was intending to come with them. That doesn't actually make a lot of sense because the whole Gospel of Mark is written from the, the third-person narrative perspective, right? So I believe it was actually Jesus' intent to pass by them. Now, why would he do this? There's actually a clue in the way the sentence is formulated. He intended to pass by them. There are two of previous places in the scripture where it says the Lord passed by someone. Exact same phrase. Now, in Hebrew rather than Greek, but the exact same phrase, exact same idea. The first is back in Exodus 33. 
In Exodus 33, Moses, who's receiving the Ten Commandments from God up on the mountain, he wants to see God. God says, you can't see me or you'll be obliterated. You can't survive beholding my glory. But Moses, I'll put you in the cleft of a rock and I'll hold my hand to shield your eyes as I pass by. Same words. Then after God passed by Moses, he lifted his hand and Moses could see the back of God's glory. And it was so powerful and glorious that Moses has a glow to him when he comes down later off the mountain. You remember this, most of you. That's the first time. Second time, very similar. Elijah is also up on a mountain. Elijah's in a cave, and it says, God passed by. Same words, Elijah. And the way that that played out, Elijah's in this cave, and first, uh, there's this incredible wind, so strong that it breaks Rocks, you know, it's like the power of God that's coming toward him. Secondly, after the wind, there's an earthquake, a powerful earthquake. Thirdly, there's a great fire. And then fourthly, there's a gentle whisper. As God has passed by and then he speaks to Elijah, Elijah comes to the mouth of the cave and God then interacts with him in this quiet whisper of a wind. And it's a very amazing, powerful passage about God's glory and power, but also God's tenderness as he interacts with Elijah. But the idea here is two times before in the Old Testament, God had passed by. Same words. I think what Jesus is intending to do is pass by the disciples, showing them his glory and power and control over the elements. Walking on the water. Notice that this was a miracle just for them. No one else was around. He was going to show just them his glory, his power. He was going to pass by with the intention that they would gain confidence in him, that they would gain faith in him, that they would be awed as they beheld his glory. Instead, something very different happened. Let's pick the text back up in verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, right, in, in all of his glory, they supposed that it was a ghost And cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, this is actually terribly ironic. So let me go back to the object permanence illustration and tell you what's going on here, right? So let's say you're with your child, you're interacting with her, you leave the room, she cries out because she's scared because you've just, you're vanished, you know, you no longer exist as far as she's concerned. Now, let's say you come back in the room and she recognizes you, you she's probably going to calm down, right? If she was frightened without you, she's probably going to calm down with you. But what if a stranger comes in the room? What if someone she doesn't recognize? Or what if you've been outside and now you've got sunglasses on and a hat and you come back in and initially she doesn't recognize you? Well, instead of calming down, she's going to cry out louder, right? There's possible danger. This is what's happening with the disciples. They see glory of Christ walking on the water, but instead of their first thought being, that's our master who just multiplied the loaves and the fish. He can do anything he wants, so he's walking on the water to us. Instead of that, they say, well, it must be a ghost. Isn't it ironic that that's where their brain went? They've been with this man for, at this point, a year and a half, two years. They've seen him do all these miracles, but their first assumption is it must be a ghost. Now, it's easy for us to 
sort of pick on the disciples until we realize, yeah, God's shown up in my life in some unexpected ways, and I've attributed it to all kinds of other things other than God. So this is what's happening, uh, happening with the disciples. And I love Jesus' reply. He's so gracious with them. Uh, do not be afraid. You know, it is I. He's using Old Testament language again. You, you hear it all throughout the Old Testament. God says to his people, fear not. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You, you hear this command over and over again, and it's repeated now through the, the lips of Jesus to his disciples. Secondly, he says, it is I. And again, you know, this may be a little bit of conjecture here, but I don't think it's going too far to say Jesus was reminding them here even of his deity because it is I was the name of God. You know, when God reveals his name to Moses, he says, I am. I am who I am. So Jesus now, do not be afraid, Old Testament language. Now he's saying, it is I. He's saying, I am. And you see this several times in Jesus' life. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He goes, it is I. I am, I am here. I am he. I am God. I am the one walking on the water. God can do that. I am. He's identifying himself to the disciples. And then he gets in the boat and he's so gracious in his response. Now, I really want to drill into to verse 51 and 52 because here's the, here's the key for why they can't get past the object permanent stage in their faith. Okay? Verse 51. Then he got into the boat, the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. Right? Now that's, that's remarkable that they're utterly astonished. They're shocked that Jesus could do this. Even though they saw him calm another storm with a word, even though they saw him do all these other miracles, even though they saw him multiply the, the bread and loaves just a few, you know, several hours earlier, they're, they're astonished. And then 52 is the key. For, you know, the, 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 the reason, the, the purpose clause, for, they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. And so it was a hardening of the heart that kept them from connecting the dots. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, and I know many, most of you hopefully are in the room, you're thinking, okay, I need to know what this means, and do I have this condition called the hardened of the heart? Uh, is this what could be keeping me from the understanding and the insight and the faith? You know, is this why I'm having trouble getting past the object permanent stage in my development, in my maturing in the faith, in my growth? So we need to dig down and drill down into this idea. Now, uh, you know, if you have started a new workout routine uh, in 2017, it's still January, so you know, the gyms are still full right now. Many of you are probably doing cardio exercise, right? Cardia is Greek for heart. So cardia means heart. Now, in Greek, as in English, it has a double meaning. Yes, in Greek, it means the, the, the vessel, you know, that pumps the blood. But it also means something uh, uh, more like we would say it this way, that movie really touched my heart or my heart was moved, or, you know, if, if you're not giving your best effort, you say, I don't think my heart is really in this. What do you mean with all these phrases? You're talking about your inner person. You're talking about your inner self, and that's the same for the Greek. In fact, all times in the New Testament where, where you hear the idea of heart, all but two, it's talking about the inner person, not just uh, the, 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 the heart vessel. So this is primarily how it's used in the New Testament. Uh, a couple more things on this before I move on. The hardening of heart is a common image in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. And what it seems to be conveying, it, it's not just an emotionalism where that person doesn't cry at movies. <laughs> 
You know, if you're, if you're, you know, somebody who just has a hard time crying or just, you know, you don't get very emotional about things, you know, that doesn't mean you necessarily have a hard heart. It, it, that's not the context of this. What it means in the Bible to have a hard heart is your understanding, your, um, uh, your, your receptivity to God's word is closed off. So let me give you just a couple examples here. Um, obviously, in the Bible, what's being conveyed here is your inner self, which is your, both your spiritual life, your emotional life, and your mental life, is meant to be pliable. It's meant to be shapeable by God. When you hear God's word, whether it's through preaching or reading or you know, something you're listening to or someone gives you a word of encouragement, you're meant to sort of receive that and it's meant to shape you and mold you. It's meant to help you grow. And it's possible, in fact, it's oftentimes in Scripture that our hearts can become hardened where we don't receive it. It just sort of bounces off us. So something that was meant to be pliable and soft has become stiff or brittle or closed off. So Mark has used this expression already, but in the context of the enemies of Jesus. Their hearts were hardened. Earlier in Mark, he uses that phrase. And he was talking about those that were just would, wouldn't listen to what Jesus was saying. They, they'd already decided in their heads it wasn't for them, or it wasn't true. But this is the first time that this phrase is applied to disciples of Jesus. And, and it's a little unsettling to read this that the 12 men that were closest to him now for a year and a half to two years, at this point, their hearts are still hard. They're not getting it. So because this is so key, and in order to apply it to us, I, I want to do two more things to help you understand what this concept means and then begin to apply it to our lives. The first is I, I want you to, to jump ahead in the text. And we won't put this on the screen, but if you have the Bible open in front of you, turn to Mark chapter 8. And Jesus is going to explain what a hardening heart means. Now, while you're turning to 8, and by the way, I'm, I'm going to pick it up um, here in verse 17. But before you read that, let me just give you some context. In Mark chapter 8, there's another feeding of thousands. It's this time 4,000. So the first time it was 5,000 know, plus. The second time it's 4,000 plus. Two distinct miracles, but essentially doing the same thing a second time. Immediately after the 4,000 are fed, they're back in the boat. And what we find out is they're in the boat and they get worried and anxious, the disciples do, because they forgot to bring enough bread for the journey. And it says they only had one loaf. Anybody find that ironic? <laughs> they just saw him twice now. Take a loaf and multiply it. And yet they're worried they don't have enough bread because they only brought one loaf for the journey. And they're, 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 with, they're with this Jesus that just did all these miracles. It, it actually is, is humorous. Now, you get into 17, and here's what it says. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Here it is. Do you have a hardened heart? And so he's going to go on to define what a hardened heart looks like. Verse 18. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? By the way, he's quoting now from Isaiah 6, so this was a, this was a prophecy. And do you not remember, verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, 12. Verse 20, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? 
This is a hardened heart. All these things happening around you where God is like reaching out to you and he's using pain sometimes. He's using blessing sometimes. He's he's teaching you through his word. You've got all this exposure to God's word in your life. You come to church every single Sunday. You listen to podcasts, some of you. You read Bible on your own, some of you. And yet something's not sinking in. Something's not sort of getting past this. It's just kind of bouncing off of you. Now, I want to give you an illustration. I, I have up here, and I'll, I'll lift it up for those of you on the left that you can see it. I, I have up here a large rock, okay, a stone. And I also have a pitcher of water. Now, if I pour the water over the stone, you all know what's going to happen. I, I need to move this further away from this music stand. Some poor person is going to not be able to read there, Be Thou My Vision. Now, when I pour the water over the stone, you know exactly what's going to happen. But, but let, let's, let's watch what happens. Okay, it's just careening off the sides of this. Like, none of this is actually soaking into the rock, right? Of course, it's exactly what you would expect. Now, look at this rock for a minute. It's wet for now. An hour for now, it'll look just like it did before. This is what happens to us when we have a hard heart. God's word is preached or we read it or we hear something or he moves a circumstance in our life where it's God at work. We don't recognize it. We can't receive it because our hearts are hard. It just sort of splashes over us and we just get wet. This is my fear for us, men and women, that we would come to church, that we would do all these religious things. We would hear the God's word proclaimed and it just flows right over us like a rock because we don't have ears to hear and eyes to see. Now, I also have up here a sponge. This sponge is so much less impressive than the stone. It's flexible. It's moldable. It doesn't look like much. I, I, I can literally pick it up with a finger or two. I could never do that with the stone. Yet, yet, when it comes to receiving the water, the sponge puts the rock to shame, right? I mean, it's, it, it's soaking it in. Now, I could keep doing this. A little's flowing off, but I could keep soaking this sponge. It's going to absorb this water. It's going to soak it in. And once it's absorbed it, now I can put the sponge to use. This sponge can be wrung out, you see. This sponge can be a vessel to transport Living water from one place to another place that needs it. A dry place that needs to hear God's word. This sponge can be used to bring about cleansing. But it's not the sponge that's so wonderful. It's the water that's gone into the sponge. This stone has some uses. It can pound some things down. It can can exert the force of its will and its stubbornness. But it can never be a vessel of living water for those that are in need. It can never be about the work of changing the world that God had called his disciples to. And so you see, the stone must be changed into the sponge. It must be a vessel of the water. Now, true for the 12, true for us. There's nobody in this room that in some way, shape, or form doesn't have some lack of understanding, some stubbornness, some hardness of heart. If the disciples could be with him for all this time, seeing his miracles up close and still have a hardened heart, what hope do you and I, any of us in this room, without God's intervention in our lives? 
to have a soft heart. And so here's, here's where I want to go in, by way of application. Is, is I, I've got three thoughts, three ideas, three lessons from this text of how a hard rock of a heart can be softened. And by the way, let me go ahead and say it this way. There's some interesting theological tension here. Can, can we soften our own hearts? Or is it only God that does it? Well, it's a very interesting study in Scripture. Here's the conclusion that I've come to as I've looked into it and looked into it pretty deeply this week. I think the work is the Lord's. We can put ourselves in a context. We can put ourselves in an environment. We can be receptive. We can be open to these things. Or we can choose, sometimes even inadvertently choose, to stay stone-like in our hearts. So let me give you just three thoughts, three lessons about how this may work and play out in our lives. Lesson number one. Jesus is actively guiding the growth of his disciples. And his goal is always a receptive heart. Now, if you're a disciple of Christ, which I know most of you in this room would, would consider yourself, you put your trust in Christ and now you're going about you know, trying to follow him and trying to grow. If you're a disciple in Christ, here's what that means. Jesus is actively guiding your growth. Just like he was actively guiding the growth of his disciples. Now, when we think of discipleship, we tend to mostly think, oh man, it's really up to me. You know, I've got I've to be more disciplined. I've got to get in the Word. I've got to get in a group. Yeah, you need to do all those things, right? We need to do all those things. That's about putting yourself in the context so that Christ can change your heart. But have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus is also at work as your discipler? And have you ever thought about the fact that he uses things, yes, he uses the preaching and he uses the Bible studies and he uses your study in the Word, you know, your quiet times and all these kinds of things, but have you ever thought about that your entire life is a discipleship journey? In other words, that he might just be just as intentional with your growth as he was with the 12. Guiding them into storms, bringing them up on the mountain for a rest, providing for their physical needs, multiplying bread at the right moments. Yeah, yeah, all of us, if you look backward in your life, you say, yeah, I can see how God's hand was there. He allowed me to go through that or he provided for me miraculously. At the moment, I couldn't see it, but now I see it looking back. But things in our lives right now, uh, that's a different story. <laughs> is it? Is it? Jesus is actively guiding the growth of his disciples. And his goal is always a receptive heart. Jesus' goal in your growth is not that you become a better theologian just for the sake of being more smarter. Jesus' Jesus' goal for your life is, yeah, learn theology, learn who God is, study this word, but so that your heart would be softened to understand and be changed. So that you'd transform from a stone to a sponge. That's the goal here. It's very important that we keep that goal clear as we grow. Now, this is a paradigm shift. It it is for most of us. And if you really think about it, it is, because here's what it means. It means when it comes to your spiritual growth, you rarely get to choose your own curriculum. Just let that sink in for a minute. If you start seeing spiritual growth as a disciple of Jesus, it's not just the, the, the moments that you're in the Word or in the Bible study or doing these things, but it's your life that God is guiding for your own softening of your heart and receptivity to hear the Word that you're studying or hearing preached. 
you rarely get to choose your own curriculum. Isn't that true? Certainly doesn't mean that you don't have a role to play in this, right? You need to be open to it. You need to, you, you, you need to pray for eyes to see and ears to hear. I'm not saying you just sit back on your couch and Jesus is going to grow you into this mighty man or woman of God with a soft, receptive heart, but you rarely get to choose your own curriculum. He uses the classroom and he uses the lab. He used the peaceful setting on the green grass on the hill when he was multiplying the bread, and he used the back-breaking wind and waves down in the valley of the sea. Are you open to his development path for you as a follower of Jesus? Or are you closed off through your own bitterness, maybe your busyness, maybe your selfishness? Uh, You're so jam-packed full of yourself some of us are, that we have no space to be receptive. This stone's not porous. It doesn't have any holes in it. It can't receive anything. All right, that's lesson number one. Remember, he's in control. He's guiding your growth. His goal is always a receptive heart to give you eyes to see and ears to hear, to soften your heart so you can receive his word and be transformed. Now, how does he actually do it? How does he go about the softening? That's lesson number two that, that, that I think is right from this text. Number two, the primary tools Jesus uses to soften our hearts. You ready for this? You're not going to like the first half. <laughs> two primary tools Jesus uses to soften our hearts. Failure and grace. Failure and grace. Let's talk about the front end. I don't like this front end either. I don't like to fail. <laughs> I don't like to be out of my depth. But you know, notice how, how Jesus allowed them to fail. You might even say he set them up to fail, perhaps, so they could behold his glory as he walked on the water. Now, not only did he allow them to fail, potentially even set them up to fail in this context, but then he responded so graciously. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he gets in their boat, even though that, you know, that, that was sort of the, the, the second best thing that could happen to the disciples was for Jesus to get in the boat. The best thing was for them just to behold his glory and majesty as he passed by like he did for Moses and Elijah. But he acquiesced to where they were at and he got in the boat with them. Wasn't that kind? Wasn't that gracious? Failure and grace. This is the story for the rest of Mark's gospel. Like As we go through it all this spring and into the summer, I want you to be looking for how many times the disciples fail. This is not the last time. It's over and over and over. Failure and grace, failure and grace. It's like two sides of the coins, for uh, two sides of a coin for any follower of Jesus. We fail and we have grace. We fail and we have grace. Now, I will say this way. Can there be grace without failure? Ultimately, isn't it your failure that drew you to Jesus in the first place? Your inability to be righteous and holy on your own puts you to the foot of the cross to receive grace. Sometimes we have the idea that we stop receiving grace once we've received it once. You know, now, now the rest is just, now, you know, I got to will myself into growth. That's actually not the way it works. The, the, the growth path of the disciples is pretty clear. Even after they're with Jesus, even after they decide to follow him, it's failure and grace, failure and grace, failure and grace, up until the ultimate failure and grace at the cross. They fail him in the worst possible way. And then he rises back up. And what does he do? He restores them. He shows them grace. 
In the, the end of the book of John, we see this beautiful picture of Jesus restoring Peter and the other disciples. Failure in grace. Now, this shifts another paradigm for us, I think. Here's what this means. Our floundering and our missteps and our deficiencies are not obstacles to Christ maturing us. Did, did you hear that? Your mistakes, your, your, your falling on your face, your lack of object permanence, your lack of faith are not obstacles to Christ growing you. Now, I'm not saying that failure is good. And by the way, let me just give this little disclaimer. I'm also not saying that growth is not possible. <laughs> I'm also not saying that we shouldn't be transformed, that we shouldn't be changing, that we should look different now than we did 10 years ago. And we should look different 10 years from now than we do now. I'm not saying any of that. But what I'm saying is Jesus uses your failure and he uses the grace that comes right behind it to mature you in the faith. But here's what it takes on your part. You've got to recognize the failure and receive the grace. Because if you're just cruising right along, you're like, oh, well, I can just fail as much as I want because Rob says that God's using failure and grace. No. You're not receiving the grace. You can't receive the grace until you say, Jesus, I need it because I've failed. This is how this works. And at this point in the disciples' life, we actually don't see them at calling out for grace. I'm getting ahead of myself. This is lesson number three. We'll get there in just a minute. All right, so lesson number one, it's Jesus who's in control of your growth and his desire and goal for you is always a receptive heart. Lesson number two, the primary tools I believe he uses to soften your heart over time is your failure and his grace. And oftentimes, this is again and again and again, as you grow, as you grow. Lesson three, Jesus always responds to our cries for help. Okay, let me just get through this briefly. You know, there's a part of the text, if you notice in your program, it goes all the way through 56. I asked Joe to stop at 52. And don't worry, this is not going to be an 80-minute sermon. Uh, I'm, I'm closing with this, but let me read you the, the last four verses in, in our passage, 53 to 56. When they'd crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about that whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. Now, now just, just look at me here for a minute. What do you think might have happened as the disciples were seeing Jesus heal all these people just immediately after the incident on the, on the sea? What do you think if they would have recognized their own hardness of heart as an ailment that needed to be cured? And what if they would have come to Jesus and said, I, I just saw you heal that man's eyesight or I just saw you, you mend that broken bone instantaneously. I need eyes to see in here and I have something that needs to be mended in here. And they reached out and cried out. Listen, I'm kind of using my sanctified imagination here, but I've got to imagine that their growth process would have taken a giant leap forward. That Jesus would have responded to this cry, would you soften my heart? Here's the application for you and me. Have you ever asked Jesus to transform your heart? From this to this. Like, has that ever even been in your vocabulary? 
Listen, until I started studying this passage, I had never in my life asked Jesus to give me a soft heart. I've asked him for a lot of things in my life. I've never asked him for a soft heart. I've never asked him for a heart that would receive and be open, that would understand, be moved, be changed, be tender. This is what I want. This is what I want for you. And the text here says, as many as touched the fringe of his cloak were being cured. Now, I'm not going to go in and kind of name it or claim it anything here, but it begs the question in my mind, have we ever asked Jesus to soften our hearts? And do we think he would not listen to that prayer and just graciously and willingly and quickly step in and say, yes, yes, I will soften your heart. So this is how I want us to close. I'm going to pray for this for us as a body. And after I pray, we're going to sing. And and the song that we sing is just going to be an opportunity for us to continue that prayer. And and if you want to stand and sing, if you want to sit and pray, if you want to come forward and kneel, whatever whatever you want to do to use this time during this song to continue to pray and ask God for the softening of the heart, this is what I want to lead us in as one of your pastors. Because this, I think, is a key to our growth and our maturing in our faith. Bow your heads with me as I pray. Father, I acknowledge your tenderness, your grace, your mercy, your wisdom. God, this incredible growth path that you had for his, your disciples, Jesus, is incredible, amazing. Every moment, every day was intentional. And I dare to ask Jesus, are you that intentional with us? Because I believe that you are. I don't believe that you loved them any more than you love the other men and women in this room that are, that are joining me right now in this prayer. So, Father, would you be so kind as to soften our hearts? And, and I invite all of you in the room that have a desire, that, you know, if you're even at a place where you recognize any hardness of heart in you at all, and you're willing to ask Jesus to soften your heart, I just invite you to it. I invite you to, to ask him. And so, Father, on behalf of these prayers going out right now, I know you hear and I know you'll respond. And so I have joy and I have confidence. So God, I pray that you'd help us to continue in a spirit of prayer, begging you to soften our hearts even as we worship together in this song. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray.